0: Welcome to the Best of the Banff Mountain Fest, presenting highlights from the world-famous Banff Mountain Film and Book Festival. I'm Joanna Croston. In this episode, we'll be revisiting the 2014 edition of the festival for a presentation from historian and climber Zach Robinson, who will be talking about the subject of his book, Conrad Cain, Letters from a Wandering Mountain Guide. Conrad Kane was an iconic mountaineer who is credited with 69 first ascents in Canada. Along the way, he also wrote over 144 letters to longtime friend Amelie Maleka. These letters reveal a unique and insightful view of his experiences in early 20th-century Canada. Here's Zach Robinson talking about Kane and his legacy. Enjoy.
1: Uh, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to tell you about our new volume on Conrad Kane, a great Austrian mountain guide who, for so much of his life, made Canada his home. And uh, Banff, in particular, was a very special place for him. It was a place that he was always very fond to return to again and again, so it's very nice to, uh, to be here. My involvement in this project began in 2005, so a while ago now, when Don Borden, who was then the, the head archivist of the White Museum of the Canadian Rockies, which is just down the hill here in Banff, acquired a set of personal correspondence, a set of letters, personal letters, which were all written by Conrad Kane. There's 144 of them, but quite a, quite a lot. To a single correspondent, a friend named Emily Malik from Austria, who lived not too far away from his birthplace, his home village of Nasswald. In, uh, in the mountains of lower Austria. Editing uh, these letters has been a, it's been a real humbling experience. It w- it's been a fascinating uh, project for me, in large part because of the, the richness of the material, uh, the intimacy of the material, but also because the backstory to these letters uh, is just as, as just as interesting. And piecing together the mystery of their production uh, the various functions that, that they performed, their own wanderings, and their own history. Um, for all of us who worked on this book, and there was a, a real team of folks working on this project, was, was nothing short of extraordinary. And what emerged from that really is a story of, of enduring friendship. It's a story about love. Um, it's also a story about mountains, and books, and literature, and a story about writing. So that's the story that I want to tell you. Conrad Kane was perhaps the superlative figure of climbing's earliest age in Canada. Esther Fraser famously called him the Prince of Canadian Alpine Guides. The great Hans Moser esteemed him as the master of the art of mountaineering. Uh, Even Canada's distinguished poet and novelist Earl Burney honored the mountain man in poem. Without exaggeration, he was, if you take into account his accomplishments, as well as his safety record, one of the greatest guides in the early decades of the 20th century anywhere. Um, He was born into poverty in the 1880s in the mountain village of of Nasswald, uh, which is about 80 kilometers southwest of of Vienna, uh, just where the, the far eastern side of the European Alps rises up from the plains. His father's death in a mining accident left his mother alone with four kids. Cain was the eldest and he left school at the age of 14. At the time he could hardly uh, write his own, his own name. He took work where he could find it uh, in large measure to support his family. He was a goat herder, he uh, worked as a laborer in a stone quarry, he was a poacher, but one of his vocations was uh, guiding wealthy tourists on mountain excursions around his, uh, around his home village and, and the immediate environs around the Rax, which is the, the second highest mountain in, uh, in that region, in lower Austria. It was increasingly uh, popular among the middle to upper classes, the professional classes of Vienna in the late 1800s to do these types of venturesome tours, and it's what led Kane eventually to, to mountain guiding. And mountain guiding for him really was his ticket to, to mobility. And he longed to travel, ever since he was a very young boy, uh, to emulate the tourists who he, he led through the mountains near his home, but increasingly over time throughout, throughout Europe. And so in 1909, through the connections he had made, and through the goodwill that he had, he had generated for himself, he received an offer of employment from the Alpine Club of Canada which had just formed a few years uh, earlier and had its headquarters here in, here in Banff. And they were in need of a professional guide. They were tired of loaning out those Swiss guides from, from the CPR. They wanted their own. And so they, they offered Conrad Kane the position to work at their, their summer mountaineering camps here in the Rockies. And so he came to Banff at the age of 25. He had nothing in his pocket. Um, took a steamer across the Atlantic. And his exploits here would really stun the, uh, the climbing community, as many of you probably probably know. Um, he's most well-known, uh, perhaps, for Mount Robson, which is the highest mountain in, in the Canadian Rockies. It's also known for uh, Mount Louis, which is not too far from here, just down the road. And of course, his cherished Purcells and the Bugaboos. And there are other places that bear the impress of his, his name and, and memory. His number of first ascents in the Rockies and the Purcells exceed uh, 60. It was a record at that time that was only suppressed in volume but not necessarily difficulty by, by Ed Voits, uh, Jr., the Swiss guide. But unlike his contemporaries, Kane's exploits would really range around the globe. Uh, the European Alps, the Canadian Rockies, the Purcells, but also the Southern Alps of New Zealand, um, Asia, Mongolia, Siberia, and everywhere that he went, he made a name for himself. People loved him. Not so much the other guides, but <laughs> the, the clients. <laughs> I'll get to that in a second. He wasn't uh, the big brawny type. He was only five foot five. He had a stocky build, wide shoulders. Uh, his pipe and a mustache were sort of re- regular features. He had a lovely floppy hat. Lost that in a crevasse in New Zealand. He wrote a whole letter about it, was very upset about losing <laughs> his, his hat. In camp and on the trail, he could be charming, he was harmlessly flirtatious, he was an entertaining storyteller, expert ax-man, he was a great cook, and purportedly he could carry a, an immense amount of weight. In just a little over a week, he guided Mount Robson successfully three times. Who does that? It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. He was such a good guide and he was so charming. As I hinted at earlier, he did have trouble with, with other guides <laughs> wherever he went. He made them look second-rate. In the Dolomites, he got in a fight with local guides. In, in Chamonix, the French guides chased him back to his hotel, threatening to beat him. Uh, in Canada, even the Swiss guides threatened, threatened him and, and challenged his, his credentials. In New Zealand, the local guides there had him in prison during the First World War. <laughs> Ostensibly because he was Austrian, and therefore a threat to, to national security. Um, but in fact, because he was showing them up, and he was damaging their businesses and their reputations. On the other hand, and and Chick Scott makes this great point, he wrote a great foreword to the the volume, he makes this good point that some of the greatest guides at the time in the Alps, uh, Matthias Zerbrigen from Switzerland, Sepp, Interkopfler from the Tyrell, Titipiez from the Dolomites, uh, they treated him with courtesy and respect and really welcomed him as as one of their own. However romantic, though, it was... uh, it was hard to make a life as a mountain guide in those days. I mean, it still is, it still is today. I think most guys would tell you, but at that time, it was very hard. There really wasn't a lot of, uh, of work. And so he took on other jobs. He worked for railway construction crews, surveying crews, uh, hunting parties. In 1917, uh, he married Henriquita Ferreira, his heta who was originally from British Guyana, but at the time was working at a ranch near Wilmer, belonging to a longtime client and, and friend of Kane's, Albert McCarthy. And uh, Conrad and Hedda bought a small farm in 1920. But it was from here where they, they ran, among other things, a, a small outfitting company. And throughout the latter years of his life, he continued to guide, but, but sporadically. He died quite young, uh, at the height of the Great Depression. in uh, in 1934. He was only 50 years old when he died, and the last years were pretty tough. They were obviously pretty lean. It was the Great Depression. But Hedda had died a year before in 1933, and he was really lonely. And so his last couple years were pretty pretty tough. Not really the befitting end to such a, a remarkable life. And so it was when Don let us know that he had acquired these letters, uh, at the Archive, at the White, we were of course really curious and excited to, uh, to have a crack at them, to see them. And I had the pleasure of assessing the material with, uh, with Chick, and it was on that day that we decided that we would try to do something uh, substantial with the material. What was perhaps the most exciting thing for me working on this project was the realization that people have been working on this set of correspondence, trying to get them into wider circulation for nearly 80 years. What we had was actually not the original letters written in Kane's hand. They were a, it was a transcription. And it took us a little while to, to sort this one out. And what we discovered was that the transcription was intimately linked uh, to the production of Conrad Kane's famous autobiography, Where the Clouds Can Go. This is an exceptionally important piece of work. And I'm sure that many of you are familiar with it. I love it for a whole host of reasons. The least of which, it's written by someone who is a labourer, who is a worker. He begins the book in a really lovely way. I beg the reader one indulgence. An unlettered fellow, a former breaker of stones, has written this book. <laughs> Pretty cool. Travel writing and climbing's literature, mountaineering literature, at this point in the early 20th century had, had such a unified class dimension. It was the leisure classes, that trend-setting group of, of writers, of artists, uh, of academics that were really the, the trade's top producers, and think just for a moment, because you folks are all book people, uh, just of those early classics, those monographs that were written on the Rockies. Who, who was it that was writing these books? Um, and they're all great, by the way. I don't mean to demean them in any way. They're fabulous books, but they're written by folks like A.P. Coleman and J. Norman Cauley, both academic scientists. James Utram, Sir James Utram. An interesting fellow, but that's another story. He uh, was a Cambridge-educated clergyman, uh, inherited distinction from his grandfather, a famed English general. The Americans, Mary Schaefer and Walter Wilcox, they were both born into wealth and privilege as well. And my point here, again, is not to take away from these great books, but it's to say that it was almost entirely the writings of that urban professional classes that really captured and filled out much of the landscape of the Rockies to the exclusion of of others who didn't have access to, or maybe didn't feel the need to to record their particular ways of experiencing or knowing climbing or knowing mountains. And so, Where the Clouds Can Go was a really important book for its time. It was published in 1935. Until the 1930s, the view of Canada's western mountains was really quite narrowly constrained, figuratively anyways as a, a landscape of leisure, sort of touristic fantasy, and not of productive labor. And so it was an important contribution. So how did the book come to be? After Kane's death in 1934, the great James Monroe of Thorrington, who was an Alpine historian, later the president of, of the American Alpine Club, and a longtime client and friend of, of Conrad's, Thorrington endeavored to put together all of Kane's writings into a single monograph. Kane had written several articles for Alpine Journals and magazines throughout his life, and so Thorington brought them all together, along with Kane's diary, which is still lost, in uh, this volume in his autobiography. And during that process, he contacted this person, Emily Malek from, from Austria. Thorrington knew that she'd been a close friend of, of Kane's, a, a lifelong friend, and uh, so he wrote her and inquired if she had anything that she could contribute to this volume, and, It's a good thing that, uh, it was a good thing that he did. Cain met Malik in 1906, three years before he came to Canada, and he guided her and her sister up the Hochtour. This is the highest mountain in the Enstel Alps. After this trip, a great friendship ensued. The differences in social class, Cain being a guide, Malik being a tourist, likely precluded much of a relationship beyond friendship in that morally rigid climate of pre-war Europe. But nevertheless, a, a dear, lifelong friendship ensued. And Cain, was, he was pretty enamored with her. He would write her uh, letters for the, the remainder of his life, and he'd mail her flower petals from all the different mountain ranges that he would visit. He would sign off romantically as your friend in the western woods, the wanderer, your Conrad. <laughs> yeah, it's sweet. She kept every letter that he sent to her, 144 of them, uh, stretching from 1906 to 1933, so his entire adult life, his entire life abroad. The first letter from 1906 in the correspondence is, is him saying, I received your remittance, I received your payment for the climb, that was fun, we should do it again. And then the last letter comes only months before he, he passed away, uh, late in, in 1933. And so for Thorington, Mallet carefully typed out each of those letters and she sent them across the ocean to Thorington who lived in Philadelphia because she felt that the correspondence in, in its entirety uh, painted uh, what she called a quote-unquote complete character portrait of their late friend. And that they could be made into quite a lovely book map to knowing this particular fellow, Conrad Cain. Thorrington didn't go this route. By this time, he was already well invested into the production of Where the Clouds Can Go, but he did use a few of the letters in the latter chapters. And then he sent those letters back to Europe in 1938 at the request of a man named Eric Pister, who was an early client and friend of Keynes. For those of you who are familiar with Where the Clouds Can Go, you'll be familiar with Eric Pister. He was in the book Dr. P. Pister wished to produce a, either a German version of clouds, where the clouds can go, or he wanted to do something else, something significant to honour their friend in the home, his home country of Austria. And Thorrington thought, well, this would be great, have these letters, because they, in their entirety, really say something substantial, and, and they would be a great project. And, and Pister agreed, but it was 1938 and the Second World War would ultimately displace his family. Their, their family home in Vienna was ransacked by 1944 when the bombing of the, uh, of the capital increased. It was occupied by, by Russians and then, and then by Americans. And much of the Pester's possessions were either burned or, or just thrown out the window. And thus the letters were, were forgotten and, and they were, for all intents and purposes, lost. But by chance, uh, many, many years later, Eric Pister's son, Gerhard... We're now in the late 1990s. Gerhard Pister lives in London, England, receives news that a box of keepsakes belonging to his late father was discovered, and the letters then travel to England. So the story gets even better. (laughs) A young Pister then is holidaying here in Banff. He's wandering around downtown Banff Avenue. Weather must have been bad. He's (laughs) snuck into the Sundance Mall, and he sees a picture of Conrad Kane on one of the interpretive panels at the uh, Canadian Ski Museum. He says, I recognize that fellow, I recognize that name. He was the guy who guided my dad. Someone said, well, you should go down to the White Museum of the Canadian Rockies and, and yeah. look at some of the photographs they had there. And so he did. And that's where he met Don Borden, who said, you should read Where the Clouds Can Go. And so he sat there for the remainder of his holiday in the Elder Luxton Reading Room, engrossed in Where the Clouds Can Go and this, this book. and. Uh, he resolved that, after reading it and after leaving Banff, he, he resolved that he would uh, take a closer look at these letters. And Don, of course, ever the good archivist, pulled out his little book of leads and wrote down that the Cain letters had, had resurfaced.
0: You're listening to Best of the Banff Mountain Fest from Banff Centre Radio, featuring historian Zach Robinson talking about the letters of iconic mountaineer Conrad Kane.
1: Well, like his father, Gerhard Pister, uh, turns out, he's a pretty busy guy, and he didn't get around to reading those letters until another vacation, this time over the Christmas holidays, uh, when he visited Sri Lanka. And this was the Christmas that the great Indian Ocean tsunami occurred. And they were staying 15 kilometers down the beach from Gale, one of the worst hit places. Um, they survived, they were, they were okay, but they were lucky, uh, because so many people from, from that particular area didn't. Of course, seeing all of this transpire on the news, uh, and knowing that Pister was in Southeast Asia, Don, ever the good archivist, contacted him and asked, you know, are you okay? (laughs) And how about those letters? (laughs) So then, very generously, uh, Gerhard decided to donate them to the White Museum, and, and then the letters found their way back to Bath, they found their way home. Don calls that the most amazing acquisition of his entire career, and and it is a great story. So what do the letters reveal? Once laid out chronologically, the letters are, are fascinating to read. We don't have Malik's responses to Cain's. And so, as readers, we really only have a, a one-sided conversation, but it's a conversation that stretches three decades. It's pretty incredible, and he's constantly referencing back to the letter that she sends them, and so it really is a conversation, and it reads as such. Despite not having her responses, Malik is always, in a way, there. I mean, she is the intended, intended audience. The letters themselves exhibit, of course, Kane's all-abiding passion for, for nature, which he was well-known for and a real genius for description. In large measure, um, because in this last regard, a lot of care was taken in the description because these were letters that he was writing, not just to friends, but really to to family at home. Emily Malik spent the last part of her life living in Reichenau, right down here, which is a resort town, not so dissimilar from a banff. And she would take often those letters that he would send her and... uh, go to the other side of the racks, and she would read the letters to Cain's to uh, mother, with whom she became quite close with. And so it must have been really exciting to receive these letters uh, and to read them. And I wanted to take the opportunity to give you just one example. This is a shorter letter. It's from 1911. So Cain had been in Canada for four years, and it was written at Moose Lake, which is in the, the Robson area, just east of or just west, rather, of Yellowhead Pass, July 23rd, 1911. Dear Miss Amelie, I can now already tell you more about this wild place, this Wild West. It's called the Wild West for really good reason. It really still is wild here. There's no houses, there's no roads, there's no paths, only old Indian hunting trails. Often you sink up to your knees in the wet mossy ground. We've already climbed some mountains. They were not so difficult. But to get to them is is underlined, that last part. The climbing didn't start very well. In our first climb, we almost got buried in an avalanche. Mr. Harmon had the audacity, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, to photograph the avalanche at its most dangerous moment. We were four men. Two of the group were so tired the next day that they couldn't come along. We were on the go for 17 hours. Mr. Wheeler and I climbed another mountain the next day, and Mr. Wheeler almost lost his life. It was an easy mountain, so we weren't roped up. Some meters from the top, Mr. Wheeler took the wrong step, and with a scream, he was rolling over snow and ice-covered rocks. I was only a few steps ahead of him. I succeeded by reaching him by throwing myself on him with some abandon. Because of that, he almost pulled me along. We stopped with one meter to spare before falling into the depths of a crevasse. I could hold myself on a small piece of rock, and luckily, him too. Since that hour, we always take a rope. He's a good guide. (laughs) We took the descent on the other side of the mountain and had to wade through the foaming, rushing glacier stream. We could not reach our camp before night and had to sleep in the forest. The next morning, that's July 23rd, we arrived at camp at 7 a.m. and in the afternoon I shot a goat and Mr. Harmon took a picture of me as a hunter. I'll send you the photo. It's 9 p.m. here and the sun is still shining on the mountains, but I have to sleep. I'm tired. Good night. P.S. I don't know how I can describe the site and the extent of this group of mountains. As far as the eye can reach, nothing but peaks, snowfields, glaciers, and valleys. All of this is beautiful. If only those little flies were not here. (laughs) They pester you so much that it's very hard to admire the beautiful nature of the valley. How fortunate that they don't go higher than the edge of the forest. With heartiest greetings, your friend in the western woods, yours truly, Conrad Cain. So a few other things that we discovered with these letters. We discovered that through these letters, Cain learns to write in English, and it was something that was very important to him. And it was, far more, it was for far more than just practical uh, purposes. We learned that he actually wanted to be a writer, that this was a dream of his throughout his entire adult life, and travel writing, in particular, was a genre that had great appeal to him. Uh, writing in broken English from Nassau in 1909, so this is just a few months before he made his initial voyage here to Canada aboard the Empress of Britain, Kane expressed his great anguish for the slip of the pen in English and begged Malik to point out and correct the pratfalls of his prose. And what began as a desire to better his writing became a, a tutorial through the correspondence, uh, Malik would carefully comment upon and correct and edited, edit his words that at first were just little passages, paragraphs, written in English and a correspondence that was, was mostly written in German. Um, and he'd always thank her for correcting those bits in, in the following letter. Later in his life, it was Malik who he would send all of the articles and essays that he wrote for different magazines. He would send them to her to get her opinions and her help and they would work them. Uh, and of course, this would take months because every letter that would go to Austria just took a month to, to get there. But these were all the same magazine articles and journal articles that Thornton would use as chapters in Where the Clouds Can Go. It's very hard for me that I have no one who helps me like you with your letters, Kane wrote to Malik in 1909. Later, much later in 1933, now writing solely in English, he told her to remember that whatever I do, it will be little in comparison for what you have done for me. His great dream in life was to be a, a writer, and in fact, he even was working for for a long time, for a few years, on a romantic fiction. Um, it was about a a European goat herding boy named Sap who travels the world. It's so semi autobiographical, but that manuscript is is lost. We've we've never we've never found it. Whatever the case, there there is solace in the fact that this book, Where the Clouds Can Go, filled with the writings of a wandering mountain guide as it is, remains in print. Uh, it's gone through four editions, most recently in 2009, through the great efforts of uh, Pat Morrow. Uh, and it's, cha- it's cherished around, around the world. Not bad for that self-disparaged, unlettered fellow who so dreamed of, of being a writer. Pretty cool. Few traces remain of, of Malik, Emily Malik, her wealth was inherited to her from her father, who, ironically, was a Venice paper manufacturer specializing in letter envelopes. <laughs> she died in 1941 and, and was buried in Reichenau. She never married, nor did she have any children. I was able to, to find her summer villa. It's a, a veritable castle compared to anything that she would have found. The height of the Great Depression in the Columbia Valley, were she ever to accept his invitations to come and visit. Four months after his uh, last letter to Malik, so August 1933, uh, Kane became ill. His final trip to his cherished Purcells was made in the fall, fittingly. His last climb was the very long first ascent of the high summit in the Bobby Burns group, and it now bears the name uh, Mount Conrad. He died that winter of encephalitis lethargica. They called it the sleeping sickness. It's now a very rare degenerative disease. Died in the Cranbrook Hospital on February 2, 1934. And despite his final wishes to be buried beside his dear, Hedda, who was buried in the Roman Catholic section of the Cranbrook Cemetery, Conrad's final resting place is, is over 100 meters away on the other side of a fence in the commoner's section but there is a lovely block of granite. Perhaps his favorite medium uh, is marked with a lovely epitaph, A Gride of Great Spirit. The letters, in their entirety, are our edition, we think, takes us beyond where the clouds can go. Uh, gone is Thornton's kind and careful editorial hand. The few passages that he reprinted and used for, for clouds um, here are much rougher. But of course, we can forgive the Philadelphian. Uh, for discarding that which he he felt was maybe too personal or too political or too provoking, well intentioned, his his goal was commemorative and it was celebratory, and he published only a year after his his friend's uh, death. Today, the passage of time perhaps grants us, you know, certain liberties and objective distance, uh, so to speak. Of course, whatever conclusions we draw from the letters today we are equally and unavoidably subject to our own. Our own biases our own memory and, uh, and, and history it's uncomfortable to read Kane's anti-semitic uh, comments. We meet a Kane who in contrast to his rosy depiction in where the clouds can go uh, was sometimes deeply bitter he was sometimes afraid we're left to wonder about Conrad's wife Hedda what did she think of uh, Kane's close relationship to a wealthy single woman from his home country. We meet a a, a complex Cain who's reading Marx and Engels, who becomes deeply concerned for the plight of the working classes. I'll give you one more... I'll give you one more taste to sort of show you some of these complexities. And this is from New Zealand. He's writing at the Hermitage, which affords uh, this great view of Mount Cook. March 18th, 1914, dear friend, in my last letter in which I wrote about the accident of Mount Cook, I was in a hurry when I wrote. Uh, now we'll talk about it in, in more detail, but first I have to say that I feel very healthy. Yes, as healthy as an elk in the forest. Only someone from Banff would use that metaphor. I'm sure, I'm sure of it. I feel healthy, I wish you could see me now, look into my eyes, there's a very different spark in them than on that picture which I sent to your sister with the words, don't get scared. Life taught me hard things, and perhaps it will remain hard, because of my travels and reading of different books, I learned to think a bit, something tore the net I was in, and if one knot of the net opens, then more do the same. And I, a good honest breaker of stones, could not grasp the new picture of the world, it was too much for me. But now I see everything with calm eyes and strong nerves. I don't get too excited. I live one day to the next, enjoy nature, and think of my good friends. The government has even asked me here, has asked the Department of Tourism to invite me back to New Zealand as a guide for the next season, and asked that I train and teach the local guides according to my own experiences. One also would give me work for a whole year. Not sure if I can accept this or not, since in the summer I can make a bit more money in Canada. I think, If I may say just to you, I can be proud of it. All the guides are encouraging me to stay. The manager of the hermitage and his wife are very friendly to me, and all the doors are open for me in the house. We were gone 13 days, two days longer than we had planned, so they were all worried about us. My gentleman is also highly respected here. Now I have to tell you about the hard work we've done. We were, as mentioned, gone 13 days and made six first ascents, crossed two new passes, the Murchison Glacier, and made one first ascent, on the Tasman Glacier. It's all hard work, no trails. We had a small tent and two sleeping bags, no wood, and had to cook with kerosene. Our knapsacks were heavy. The first days I carried much more than 50 kilos. The trail we used was a long one. Some ascents were very dangerous, particularly the last one which was very exciting because of rock slides. Aside from the hard work we had splendid nights of moonlight and wonderful sunsets. In the west There are grandiose oceans of fog, which only one can see in the Alpine mountains, pure miracles of nature that move your soul. Not just once did I think of you. Hundreds of times you stood in these brilliant, beautiful mountains next to me. I think with great delight of you when I see such wonders, because I know you would enjoy such a rays of colour with me. Yes, you would do your best and happily help me with the description of the sunset and correct everything very well. That is, if I could manage to write an article about it. But I can't find the proper words. You know I have difficulty with that. I know you don't like it when I complain about my schooling, but I can't get it out of my mind and it makes me dissatisfied. I get a feeling that there are great injustices that rule the world, so that it's impossible for a simple laborer to bring up his children properly. Unfortunately, the working class has has much larger families than the rich. Barely 14 years old, a child of a laborer has to go out into the world, has to work 10 to 12 hours a day, so that he can barely make a living. Of course, I understand, too, that for the children of the rich, on the other hand, it is not so good to have to study and cram seven to eight hours a day. Later in life, it often hasn't much value for them, too. You know, for instance, the the dead languages. Many people in the world still live in darkness, but I feel sorry for every innocent human being born into a family who knows and can see that a child cannot be properly educated. What do you think? So in its entirety, uh, the correspondence we f- feel, and you can sort of see it in that passage, places on view not just, you know, that carefree life that, that most representations of, of, of Cain uh, reproduce and cherish for good reason, but also the complex life of a person who has suffered and who has worked and who has loved and who, uh, consequently, we feel, deserves to be remembered as accurately as, as possible. And his letters really place on view that multifaceted role as a mountain guide, but also a laborer, uh, a friend, a traveler, a tourist, an immigrant, uh, a writer. And they're a small but important piece in in a more open and inclusive uh, understanding of the past. We think Conrad Cain deserves nothing nothing less. And in a nice way, with the publications of, of the letter, Emily Malick's friendship, her faithfulness... To to his memory, perhaps has come full circle too. Thank you. Now, uh, before Zach gets settled, if you have a question for him, please uh, come down to the mics.
0: Does anyone know where the original letters are?
1: No, great great question. Thanks. No, um, no, they're lost. Maybe they'll they'll turn up. Um, it was tough tracking her down, not as I said not there 's not many traces of, of her remain uh, in fact i couldn 't find anything until I found her the family gravestone by just aimlessly walking around in the cemetery in Reichenau. the uh, Her sister was married uh, and took on the last name Rotter, and that was the name that the house that 's how I found the house. It was in the land registry under under this car, uh, name Rotter, and they had a child um, and had a, a living grandchild who I contacted, and they didn't know um, that side of the family very well at all. But they had a shoebox in the attic. Of course, for historians, shoeboxes and attics are very exciting <laughs> things. <and laughs> but it was in that shoebox that we were able to find the pictures of Emily and her sister that we reprinted in the book, and, and the father. But aside from that, we, we couldn't find anything. Kane's possessions, Uh, We don't have very uh, much of either. His house burned down in in Wilmer and, and much was lost. So they're out there, maybe. Thanks for the question.
0: That was historian Zach Robinson on stage at the 2014 edition of the Banff Mountain Film and Book Festival. If you enjoyed this episode... I encourage you to check out Robinson's book, Conrad Cain, Letters from a Wandering Mountain Guide. That's it for this episode of Best of the Banff Mountain Fest. If you like what you've heard, think about subscribing to our Best of the Banff Mountain Fest podcast. And if you're passionate about climbing, you may also want to check out our Basecamp podcast. Find us on iTunes or on our webpage, BanffCenterRadio.ca. And if you want to get in touch with us, Look for us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Radio Banff. I'm Joanna Croston. Thanks for listening.